So what I want to do this morning is I want to make a public confession about your pastors to you. And I think that it's a confession that you probably already know, and I hope that you do. But we as pastors do not take our calling to be Christ's under shepherds lightly. We don't take it lightly because of passages like Jeremiah 23, which we'll read, and 1 Peter 5. So let's look at these two passages this morning so that you can feel the weightiness that we feel in this calling as Christ's under shepherds and why we are so committed to doing this for his glory and for your good. Let me begin with Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 4. There's both a warning and a hope in this passage. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, I don't know that you feel this the way I feel this. But there is a weightiness in this text for your pastors. You are Christ's flock, his sheep of his pasture. And we are called to steward this pasture well, carefully. He can remove those who do not, and he can send you those who will. He is the Lord of the church. Look at First Peter to again see the weightiness of this. The last chapter of First Peter, chapter 5, I always think of Peter, even though it's not listed in any commentaries you find, but I always think of Peter as a pastoral epistle in some ways. There's much pastoral direction in it. Here, especially at the end, we see that. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's weighty in a glorious way. There is again a warning in it and there is again a promise in it for those who do this well. There's a warning to those who come to this ministry and this calling lightly. But those who come to this calling and this ministry carefully, they have the hope of a reward in glory from the Lord Jesus himself, the great shepherd of the church. We are but under shepherds, servants of the Lord. I think, saints, that passages like these are what call us and cause us as pastors to feel the weightiness of our duty. The weightiness of our duty hinges on this. We are called by the Lord of the church himself to nourish and protect his blood-bought bride. This should not be taken lightly. If I asked you to protect my wife when I was away and you took it lightly and I came back and found that she was hurt, she was harmed, she was somehow polluted by what you allowed, I would come back with fury. And the Lord Jesus will do the same for those who abuse his bride. So we must enter into this ministry carefully. And, and our good shepherd knows we need pastoral ministry because we are all like sheep and we will go astray, right? Pastors included. Pastors need pastors. That's why we have a plurality here. We need, all of us need nourishment from Christ and from his gifted men, from those who are called by him to protect us. We need shepherds. And so God gives us that. God gives us a gift. He, he gives us the gift of 
pastor teachers. He gives us those men who are called by him and gifted by him spiritually to feed and direct and comfort his sheep his way, not their own way. Not creatively, but biblically. Now, as you already, I'm sure, know by what I've already alluded to, the men he calls to do that are called pastors. And by the way, as a side here, they are men who are called to do this, not women. This is a male calling that God has ordained for them to fulfill, not women. Because we are to take the blunt of all the battles, not our women. We are called to have authority and speak clearly, confidently, and boldly, not God's women. We are to be their protectors. So these men, though, that are called to do this, these men are called pastors. Now, there's some confusion sometimes around the term pastor, because sometimes people think that is their title, like I'm Pastor Randy. Saints, that's not my title. It's my description. This is not a title. It's a descriptor. You need to understand that because this, this description defines our duty, not our nobility. It, it describes our calling, not our place of status or standing. It, it, it calls us, this, this description calls us to remember that we are here to nourish and protect Jesus' sheep. They're not ours. You belong to him. And this, this title, pastor or shepherd or under shepherd better, dis- defines the fact that we are called not to do what we want with the sheep. We don't own them. Jesus does. We are simply to nourish them and protect them from harm. That's when we talk about pastoral ministry. We need to understand that this ministry is not a profession. It's a divine calling. Shepherds are called to serve Christ's sheep, <laughs> his church. As Christ's slaves, not as CEOs or celebrity preachers. Pastors are not called to be personal motivators or social commentators or life coaches or even creative speakers, as you'll obviously see as I preach. But we are called to be faithful. We are called to be faithful, to be to be faithful to our calling, to be humbly servants of Christ Relying on his grace, relying on his power, relying on his word to guide us, to proclaim the truth that will nourish and protect his people from harm and prepare them for the work of the ministry. Look at Second Corinthians to see a description of what a faithful ministry of a pastor should look like. It's typified in the Apostle Paul's own ministry, I believe, here. Second Corinthians four. This should be a humbling Warning to those who take this ministry lightly or treat it as a profession or a place to promote themselves. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not self-promotion. It's not self-praise. But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For, for God who said, let Light shone out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning the pastors are just instruments. Christians, we are just instruments that are given this great treasure that shines out of cracked pots. So that people know that the pot is not to be praised, but the content is. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, anything good that comes out of us, belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words... If I go through these difficulties, if I go through these struggles, if I faithfully proclaim the truth and I am afflicted in all these ways, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know that it's Jesus who's at work in me, in my body. He is to be praised. Verse 11 says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus's sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. We are dying daily to ourselves to make much of Jesus, not our ministry. Not our position. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with him, with Jesus, and will bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So so we don't lose heart. Look, we're nothing in we're going to go through suffering for the sake of you to bring glory to God. But we don't lose heart in that. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't look to our calling as our identification, our status. We look at our calling in light of the God who called us as an instrument of grace. So that though we will pass away and listen, pastors are replaceable. We are not people that you have to cling to. You cling to Christ because we're going to pass away. But the word of God remains forever. And you need to have men who are faithfully committed to proclaiming that, not themselves. So that means that pastors need to be given to God's instruction on how they should do this. They're to be given to do this joyfully and honorably. This is their duty. They're to do this publicly and they're to do this personally. It's not one or the other. It's both. You you may be a good preacher. You may be a talented theologian and you get up and you can preach or you're good at oratory, but you can't live out the words you proclaim. You are not called to be a pastor. You're a speaker. It's not the same thing. You can be a lousy communicator in the sense of not sounding pretty or full of oratory, but you can proclaim truth with conviction and with authority because the Spirit of God blesses that, the man who is humble and contrite before the Lord. We're called in our duty to publicly proclaim two things that I want to look at real quickly. First, it's going to be in 2 Timothy 4. Go there with me. Verses 1 and 2, and most of you can probably already guess where I'm going with this. Pastors have been given the joyful honor and duty of, number one, proclaiming publicly the truth of God's word to feed, to nourish Christ's sheep. That's what it says here in chapter four, verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's not, when it's hard and when it's easy. And all those things reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do it doctrinally. Preach the word correctively, encouraging, doing it with patience and teaching. But don't deviate from this calling, this duty. Preach the word, not the culture, not yourself, not what's popular, Not the social agenda, not politics. Preach Christ and him crucified. Preach the text. Preach the word. Jesus takes care of politics, all right? Jesus takes care of the social issues. Preach Christ. That's what we're called to do publicly. We're also called to personally guide and protect Christ's sheep carefully to protect them. Look at Acts chapter 20. This is the great farewell of the Apostle Paul as he's leaving Ephesus And commending them and commissioning them to continue on in their ministry as elders in this congregation at Ephesus, which Timothy later on pastored. But here in Acts 20, we're seeing we see here that that pastors are given the joyful honor and duty of personally guiding and protecting Christ's sheep, not from a distance, not from an ivory tower, not from anywhere outside of being involved in their lives, being a part of their lives. The Apostle Paul is an illustration of that. Look what it says in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, just before this, he talks about how he went from their 
from house to house, how he spent time with them personally. And in verse 25, he says, and now behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He knows he's going to die. Therefore, I test you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. That's personal. And to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look, you cannot be an overseer and care for the church of God unless you're involved with those that you are overseeing. You cannot be a part of their work and their effort and their energy and their struggles if you're not involved with them. And Christ, it says here, obtained them with his own blood. Here's why you have to pay attention to yourself and all the flock. Not some of the flock, not the popular ones in the flock, not the rich in the flock, not the poor in the flock, but all of them. Because he says this in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the words of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. These are serious admonitions and illustrations of what a pastor is called to do. He is to publicly proclaim the word with conviction, without shame, and personally put it into application by discipling people one on one, by laboring with them, by caring for them from house to house, involved in their lives, because there's an enemy that wants to destroy and corrupt the church to bring shame on the name of Christ. So listen, if... I say all that and and you're thinking, well, we don't see this happening necessarily here. It it is a warning to all of us in every church. This is going to be a constant battle. It may not be happening now, but it will in the future. As long as there is an enemy that rages against the church, there's going to be a reason to do these things, to preach the word and proclaim the truth and do it with compassion, personally being involved in protecting the flock. So listen, if, if, if a man comes to you and he says, I I think I'm called in the ministry. I want to be a pastor, but he isn't willing to do these things. He is not a pastor. He has not been called by God. If he isn't willfully eager to faithfully and capably preach the word, he's not a pastor. It's one of the only actual things he's actually called to do that's technical. He's got to be able to teach. If he can't do that, won't do that, is afraid of doing that, he's not a pastor. He may be a deacon. I don't know. He may be some other servant of the church in some other area, but he's not a pastor. Just because you like the title, you don't get to choose the calling. It's God who calls and describes your duty. So if he isn't willing to preach and proclaim the truth unashamedly, clearly, In season and out of season, when it's popular and when it's not, he's not a pastor. If he isn't willing to personally walk with and guide and guard you as the sheep of Christ, as the flock of God, he's not a pastor. If he's not willing to protect you, he might just be a hireling. If he's not willing to do that, he might just be a coward. Or he just might be deceived. But he is not a pastor. He is not called by Christ to care for his sheep because they will do both. Publicly declare God's word and personally apply that by protecting you as those who walk with you in the battle. Now, I say all that and when I do, it it sounds really bold and confident of me like I would never be like any of those things. I would never be ashamed to preach the word or I would never be unwilling to walk with you and guard you personally. But the truth of the matter is those things terrify me. I struggle with those things. I may not do it as well as I want, but I desire it with all of my heart. Because I think Christ is at work in me. And at times when I read things like I'm reading to you today and talking to you about today, it overwhelms me. It, it, it makes me pause and examine myself and my own ministry. And it should do that. It should overwhelm me because my calling is a calling of great honor. To guard and guide the bride of Christ, it's a frightening joy to be a pastor. It's a terrifying excitement that comes along with this duty. 
It humbles and amazes me constantly, mostly because of my own weakness. Illustration. I spent the entire day yesterday preparing to preach first Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 to 18. And here we are at this because I couldn't get it. I couldn't do it. And the Lord turned my heart to my own weakness and said, you need to commit yourself back to my calling on your life publicly. So the church will know they need to pray for you. They need to serve alongside you and you need to serve more faithfully alongside them. I'm called to nourish and protect you. The bride of Christ. You are Jesus's most prized possession on earth and in heaven. And that just blows my mind to think about. You don't look all that prized right now. I'm just saying. All right. But you are. Because one day you'll be glorified just like me. Right. And we'll all be able to see what Christ only can see. But you are the most prized possession of the Lord Jesus. He gave up his life for you at the cross to transform you and to protect you until he comes again or you go home. My duty in the meantime is to be faithful with this stewardship of caring for you. And this is a serious thing to me and it terrifies me. It humbles me constantly. It's a humbling honor. And and I'm convinced that I need to excel still more at this and can only do so by God's grace. That's the only way we do any ministry. It's by God's Sovereign grace. I can't do this in my own strength. I don't even want to try. I've tried. It doesn't work. God humbles me because he loves me when I try to do it on my own in my own strength. This this work demands faith in a strength that comes from outside of us. The calling of pastoral ministry demands God's sovereign grace to overcome our weaknesses. It demands that because this calling is impossible in our own strength. It requires things that we cannot muster up within ourselves. It requires much personal discipline. Now, if you think you're disciplined, and today if you're a pastor or you know pastors who think they're disciplined, tell them to go read John Owen for a while. The man in most of his theological writings... He is writing to high school students and seminary students today can't understand him. It's not because he was just so smart, but it's because one reason he got up every morning and spent four hours in prayer and reading the Bible in multiple languages before he even started his day. I don't have that kind of discipline. I do good to get my coffee and read a few passages of scripture before eight o'clock. All right. But it requires something that I don't have. But when I do have a desire for discipline, I know that it's coming from the Lord. Because in and of myself, I'm not that disciplined. Ask my wife. And she'll tell you. But it requires an impossible thing that I cannot do on my own. It requires a spirit working in me to bring discipline out of me. And it requires a passionate commitment to you, even when you're not lovely. It requires me to be compassionate toward you anyway. And when I'm not lovely, you are called to be compassionate to me. And that, again, takes sovereign grace, right? (laughs) And what it really comes down to is, is pastoral ministry and all ministry for Christians. It must be driven and empowered by the divine work of God and God alone. We see that testified to in Colossians 1. Look there with me. This is what strengthened the apostle. This is what motivated the the apostle to do his work of the ministry that he was called into. And you think about the apostle Paul. He had a relentless heart for ministry. And we know that came as a result of Christ who dwelt in him and empowered him. And the same spirit of Christ dwells in us as well, which is great confidence, a great confidence to me. In 124, the apostle writes, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. First of all, that's where I'm already not even on the same page with Paul. All right. I don't know that I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, at least not as faithfully as I ought. How does he do this? Well, he's going to tell us how he does all this. It's not in and of himself. It's not his own inherent strength. It's not his own dunamis. It's the dunamis of God that's at work in him. It says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. I'm suffering in Christ's place. The anger the world still has for Jesus is now being poured out on me as I try to minister to you and proclaim to you the truth to edify his church. The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God 
that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to you, to his saints, to them, God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Notice that. I'm giving my life to this. For this I toil. But notice what he says next. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What that means is at the end of the day, his faithful ministry, my faithful ministry, your faithful ministry. At the end of the day, that faithful ministry is the result of Christ in you at work, magnifying his truth and his power. It's not your own strength that accomplishes this. It's not the charismatic nature of the pastor that makes the church grow, spiritually speaking. It's the truth that the faithful pastor preaches that produces the growth and protection of the church. The calling of the pastor is, is not a calling for spineless men or lazy men, but desperate men. Desperate for God. Reliant on him, not ourselves. It's a, it's a calling that requires that, that we are given a spine that's not filled just with the, the steel of human ingenuity and conviction, but the, the spine that is filled with the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the steel of biblical conviction, so that we will be driven by Christ's exaltation and not our own self-promotion. We're, we're driven to promote the truth, proclaim the truth, not ourselves. It's not a calling for confident men, not at all. It's not a calling for self-determined men. It's a calling that requires desperate men who humbly cry out to God for strength, knowing they cannot do this on their own. It's a calling for men who are willing to plead with Christ himself, asking him not only to pour out his spirit in us and his conviction through us, but also his love manifest in our actions. That his love would be poured out into our hearts, which Romans 5 promises it has been. It would be poured out into our weak spines so that we can continue to nourish and protect Christ's people when it begins to cost us personally. And listen, if, if you are godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you're a pastor who's faithful to preach the word, people will not like you. This is not about popularity. This is about faithfulness to God and the protection of his church. Look at Second Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter two. This is a calling to protect and to nourish the people of God, even though it requires the pastor to die to himself, to face what it may cost to be faithful to Christ as his servant and still lean to his grace, lean on his mercy to do this ministry faithfully. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Then you, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. If you're going to be a pastor, you've got to be willing to suffer. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. It's not about self-promotion. It's not about self-protection. It's about honoring Christ, even if it costs us everything. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is what we're called to do as pastors. This is what we must be committed to do. And you must be able to see that is evidently working into us and into our ministry. We're required to do this 
with this kind of attitude, with an a, a attitude of humility, an attitude of brokenness, an attitude of reliance on God, not ourselves, as faithful stewards who may suffer for the sake of Christ, but for the sake of the elect, we continue on in this ministry. We're required to do that, and we're required to remember that, because, listen, saints, there are many temptations to not do this in ministry today. Pastoral ministry today is a joke in many places. It's a job. It's an occupation. It's not the work of Christ being magnified through a dying servant who points to his Savior, who's willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the elect. There are many temptations for us to quit when days are hard. Every Monday is hard for a preacher and a pastor. Every Monday, you finally get the revelation of what your message was supposed to mean. It never comes on Sunday. It always comes Monday. You're like, I missed the whole point. But there are times, and I've had this happen here in the past, a long time ago. Thankfully, it hasn't happened with any of you. But I've had people come to me afterwards, and you're just kind of hoping that, man, I didn't fumble so badly here in the message that they, they aren't just offended and never come back. But they come to you and they say, oh, brother, I want to talk to you about the message. And you're thinking, yes. I said, you know, you actually missed this point. You, you didn't articulate this doctrine correctly. And grammatically, you were way off, which is not a you know, surprise to anybody. But, you know, they, they come in and give you this critique. In those moments, you know what a pastor wants to do? Quit. Give up. But our commitment to Christ and his church will not let us do that. We must persevere. We must listen to the criticism. We must actually balance it with the truth and probably realize that maybe they're right. We need to be more diligent, study more, pray more, share the gospel more. But there are temptations to quit or give up. Are there temptations to compromise so we can accommodate people? We soften the truth so other people will like us and more people will come to the church. They'll give more and then I'll have a living, right? That's the way business works, but that's not the way Christ's church is supposed to work. We're called to preach the truth in season and out of season, whether they give or whether they don't. To be honest, I've known many pastors personally who paid to preach because they were called to the ministry. They didn't wait to be paid to preach. They paid so they could preach. Look at First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. I say all of that to say that the temptations are great, but we know that if we give in to them, if we give in, quit, give up, compromise, that will lead to great harm for the people of God. According to this passage, 118, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance to the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's easy to soften the truth to accommodate people, but it's destructive. It brings reproach on the name of Christ and brings harm to those to whom we do not truly love and care for faithfully. Pastors must never allow that to happen. It must never allow it to happen because Jesus, the great shepherd, has already set the standard for us to follow. Look with me at go to Matthew 20. Just hang in Matthew because we're going to look at a couple of places there. Christ under shepherds are called to follow Christ's example in all their labors. When we read this passage, you're going to see that Christ here was a personal servant to his sheep. That's what pastors are called to be, even though we might want to give up because we got our feelings hurt or someone didn't like the way we preach the message. We can't give up. We have to continue on in our personal servanthood to care for those people. Christ served a lot of people and none of them were worthy of his service. Not one. He even spent a lot of time with one man in particular and treated him no different than the rest of the disciples. And that man was a betrayer. That Jesus was faithful to hold that man accountable to his mercy and his grace that he rejected. Pastors are called to follow Christ's example. Chapter 20, verse 25. That Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's our example. He set the standard. I can't get out of ministry because it's hard. I can't get out of ministry because people aren't worthy. None of us are. That's why Christ came, because we are needy people. And as Christ's servants, as pastors, we are called to care for those needy people, whether they rub us the wrong way or not. Frankly, we probably rub them the wrong way a lot. And they may have to persevere with us more than we persevere with them. Christ was not only a personal servant, he was also a public protector. Look on over in chapter 23. He's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees as a crowd gathered. Verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with the finger. For they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi or teacher by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you are you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. and Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, right? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, pretenders, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of God in the people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. For the sake of their pride, their praise, their prestige, they will not even personally care for those people they supposedly are leading. But not so with Jesus. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so he could redeem us. So that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is our Lord. Go with me to 1 Timothy again, chapter 4. Here in 1 Timothy 4 is really where a lot of what I'm trying to bring out is is kind of stirring up from. In 4.12 to 16, the Apostle Paul tells us here that, that pastors are simply called to be Christ-exalting examples. That's how we are to teach, and that's how we are to serve, like Christ. We're called to personally live out the truth that we proclaim publicly. Okay, look what it says in 12 to 16. This is our commitment to you as your pastors, and I'm speaking for all of the men that represent that here in our church. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. The word is a typos, the typesetting tool. It cut a hole that left a mark, an impression. Be an example, a typos, a trailblazer, one that others can follow the pattern of. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Basically, read the Word, explain the Word, apply the Word. That's what you're to be committed to, nothing else. Not advertising, not creativity, but preach the Word. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will rescue or save both yourselves and your hearers. I think many churches and many pastors need to be reminded of this passage today. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded because people don't take this passage seriously. He's telling Timothy here, you've got to be devoted to the word of God, to preaching the word. And it's got to transform your life in such a way that the people who hear you preach see it affect the way you live. There's truth on display in your preaching through your transformation, your sanctification. But sadly, many, many places, many churches today Neglect this very passage as their standard by which they gauge the ministry of pastoral care. And this is supposed to be the place to go. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus. And today, as a result of neglecting places like this, we have way too many entertainers in the pulpit and few expositors. And that should not be so. We preach Christ, not ourselves. The truth The truth of God's grace, the truth of sanctifying mercies that we receive in Christ. 
Not some kind of program. Not some kind of self-betterment program. But we preach Christ. We exposit the text. We explain it. We read it. We explain it. We apply it. And as I thought about that early this morning, I think there are three reasons that come to my mind that, that people neglect this today. They neglect it first and foremost if I summed it all up. They neglect it because it's hard to do what he's being called to do here. It requires the grace of God, not strength of man. And too many people are relying on their own strength and not the grace of God to do their ministry. This calling in three different ways, I think, is neglected because of people don't really understand the importance of the Holy Spirit's power in our ministry. Ministry is empowered by the Spirit, not creativity classes, not sensitivity training. Our ministry requires not just the Spirit to give us strength. It requires diligent study on our part. I mean, the Spirit's not going to force the word into your ears. You've got to read it. You've got to spend time in it. Not just download it. You would be shocked to know how many men download their sermons. Prepackaged, ready to go. Never spend a moment in prayer. Never spend a moment studying it themselves. The reason so many people neglect the pastoral instructions and the commitment that we're called to in this is because they they neglect diligent study. They neglect the spirit's power to empower them to do their work of ministry. And they also reject this because in this passage alone, you can see that to do this ministry, it requires personal holiness, not cultural acceptance. He's saying you've got to practice these things. You've got to immerse yourself in these things. You can't just get up and preach theology. That's not enough, Timothy. Immerse yourself in these. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine you teach. It's supposed to filter through you before it goes out to them so that they see the very power that you are proclaiming to them from the word of God, transforming you in their midst. And those who see it will follow it. Because they see a living illustration of it. He says, practice the things that you teach. Be immersed in them personally. Don't just do this as a profession. Don't just do this academically. Do it personally for the sake of those you serve to save both yourself and your hearers. And that word save is so terrible, but it can be translated that rescue the rescue of those and yourselves who see the work of the word changing your own life. So, in other words, what what we need to remember and never neglect when we hold pastors accountable for their work of the ministry is that it requires spiritual and personal progress. And that progress must be able to be seen. You must be able to see our personal holiness in our life. Not perfection, but direction. All right. You must be able to see the public work of proclamation faithfully coming out of us. You must see it. Privately, you must see it publicly. You must see that we are living out the word we proclaim to you weekly. You must see that we are faithful to proclaim that word without compromise when we do it. How many people come to Romans chapter one these days and completely skip over a whole section on homosexuality because it's culturally unacceptable and almost damnable in our culture today? And they fear man more than they fear God, who has the ability to cast both Body and soul into hell for such an abomination. We're afraid to preach that. The culture might not like it. Christ says, if you love me and you love those who are perishing, you will preach it. Not out of hate, but out of deep compassion for the lost. Because such were some of you liars, thieves, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals. But the grace of God has changed you. You're no better. You're only graced by God. And you have hope to give those who are lost. Pastors are commanded to do all these things because our our progress in the faith, our progress personally and publicly should, as I said, create a living example for you to follow that points you to the one we follow, that points you to Christ and his power and his grace that is at work in us. So a pastor's personal devotion to Christ and his word is, is meant by that to encourage you not to promote him. We, we like pats on the back way too much. It's good to encourage us, but don't flatter us. Our ministry is about serving Christ and you, not ourselves. We need encouragement. We need edification. 
We need reminders when we get it right. We need reminders of when we get it wrong that you're there with us, even though we are struggling in it. But most of all, we need you to understand that we are here trying to live this out, preach this truth so we can encourage you to honor Christ in your walk with him. As you see our lives being transformed by his word and you hear us preach it with conviction, I pray that you'll see that. But for you to see that, you, you have to understand that it means you've got to stay close to your shepherds. The shepherds have to stay close to you. If the sheep are going to follow the shepherd, you've got to be together. That's why corporate worship and gatherings are so important and beneficial to the church. It's there that you begin to actually find out. So the guy preaches a good sermon, but does he walk a good walk? You'll find out when you get into a private conversation and somebody cuts into some kind of derogatory word or hateful speech and he joins in or he abstains and he actually calls out and exposes the darkness. You'll find out whether you're able to walk with him faithfully if he's walking with Christ faithfully. Now, as pastors, we, we can't possibly, as bivocational pastors especially, we cannot walk with you as closely as we would like. But I'm saying this for all the men here at Sovereign Grace, that we are committed to making every effort possible to do that. In our limitations, in our weaknesses, we want to make progress in that area so that we can follow Christ as Paul followed Christ. As we see Paul describe the work of the ministry as, as a father correcting sons and a mother nourishing those who are weak. We want to be like that for you. We want to care for you and correct you in love as a parent. Let me end with this this morning on that note. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, if you have not read Baxter, you must. A book entitled The Reformed Pastor, I think, is a book that every congregant should read and every pastor should read yearly. But in this book, Baxter describes how and why pastors should care for the flock and correct them as a loving parent cares and nourishes their children. Here's what he says. Our work requireth greater skill and especially greater life and zeal than any of us bring to it. It's no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God in the name of the Redeemer. It's not easy. It's not an easy matter to speak so plainly that the most ignorant may understand us. And so seriously that the deadest hearts may feel us. And so convincingly that the contradicting cavaliers may be silenced. The whole of our ministry must be carried on in tender love to our people. We must even travail in birth till Christ be formed in them. They should see that we care for no outward thing, neither wealth, nor liberty, nor honor, nor life in comparison to their salvation. Therefore, see that you feel a tender love to your people in your breasts and let them perceive it in your speeches and see it in your conduct. Let them see that you spend and are spent for their sakes and that all you do is for them and not for any private ends of your own. Oh, that I could follow Baxter's words of wisdom here. Oh, that God would raise up many men who would follow Baxter's wisdom here. Baxter knew that biblical comfort and correction was part of pastoral ministry, but it would only be received gladly if if the man of God who's called to shepherd them is willing to personally walk with them through all the difficulties and joys in their Christian walk and faithfully through those journeys, point them to Christ and his word as their word of hope, their word of correction. And I want you to know that all your pastors here are personally committed to pursuing that, that kind of work personally and publicly. We do that because we know that Christ himself personally laid down his life for the sheep to save you. And he called us personally to serve you faithfully. You belong to Jesus. We're called to serve him by caring for you like him. That should humble us. That should encourage you. And that should bring praise to God on the last day when he will be vindicated in his saints. His work will be on full display on that last day. Please, I want you to do this as, as I end here. I want you to pray for us. I know you pray for us. I really am confident you do pray for us. It's not a thought that even crosses my mind that you don't pray for us. But I, I would ask you to pray for us because we fight a real enemy. 
it really is an enemy that we fight spiritually. And there's also a greater enemy that lies within each one of us in our indwelling sin. So we are tempted. We are weak. We do struggle. We do fail. But God's word is greater than our weakness. God's word can conquer our weakness. God's word can create faithfulness and joy within us. And for that, you should pray. It's to your advantage that you pray for our joy as your pastors, by the way. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? He tells us why. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. It's a humbling thought. But he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for the glory of Christ to be manifest in us and through us. And pray that we have joy in that sanctifying work for your own advantage. So that you would too be encouraged and equipped to go into the world and proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus as you follow our example. So let's pray together that that would happen, that that would take place today. And that Christ would be glorified through our pastoral ministry in this church and through your practical ministry in your own life. Each one of you have been given a great call to be ambassadors for Christ. And we want to equip you and encourage you in it. We want to walk with you when you struggle with it. And this is what this message is about today. It's just our commitment, my commitment in particular to you, that I want to excel still more, but I need grace. I need strength. By God's grace, it will come. And through your prayers, it would be to your advantage. So let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that is your word. We thank you for the way you not only prepare our hearts to receive it, but you give us examples of what it does. Those who proclaim it, Lord, you are calling to live it. You're calling to use their proclamation and their personal application as an illustration of the power of your word at work in them. They are to be an example. Lord, I pray that that would be the case in my own life. Lord, I pray that you would overcome my weakness with your strength and let Christ be honored as I decrease. Lord, I remember praying a long time ago, almost 11, 12 years ago for this very church. And my prayer then is the same today, Lord, that That all we do at the end of the day would ultimately leave the testimony of Christ and not ourselves to this community. Let Christ be exalted as we decrease. Let your word go forth from your people for the glory of your name and the good of the lost, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.